0: This is The Sidebar, a podcast by the New York Association of Black Journalists. My name is Joyce Philippe, and I'm your host for today's episode. Our guest today is Sherelle Dorsey. Sherelle is an established data journalist, author, and entrepreneur. Over the last seven years, she founded and ran The Plug, a digital news and insights platform covering the black innovation economy. After announcing last spring that the plug would be closing its doors, she sits down with us now to share her journey, what she learned from operating and growing a black media startup and what founders should know for future ventures. But first, here's how Shirelle became so passionate about the world of technology in her own words.
1: So I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, and that's super relevant to my story because I grew up in the heart of a tech city, Seattle, very much driven by software, by the Microsofts of the world. And um, so I learned I learned how to code um, really early on in high school, working at Microsoft as an intern. And my grandfather had bought my first computer in high school, me and my cousins. And so technology has always been and played a big role in my life. And I was taught and mentored by incredible, um, you know, black and brown, female, gay, straight, what have you, um, engineers, data scientists, um, product managers, what have you. Um, That was truly like the The basis of my upbringing, so I always knew that like technology would play a a tremendous role in my professional life. I love the idea of creating something from scratch envisioning what the world could be through technology, providing tools to create ease and access. And what I really loved about it was this opportunity for justice through technology um, and the way in which we could build tools that could fundamentally help solve problems. And it didn't matter, um, you know, where you came from or what your background was, you really could just like create things from 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 thin air. Um, and, and I loved how it paired with entrepreneurship. So that was always like, truly the core of who I was, was, you know, wanting to build something that um, combined some of those loves and also served in the public interest and the public good. And I was also a big storyteller. I grew up um, with a mom who on weekends, we would go to Barnes and Noble, and we would read all day, we would, co- she would come home and have like three or four books each. And we just spent a lot of time reading. My mother like completed our entire home library with, um, with black authors and and books. So it was funny, because like when I got to college, um, I had not read a lot of the classical books that most people had read, because all of my books were like, Black authors. So I knew the Toni Morrison's, I knew the James Baldwin. You know, I'd read like the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was like 10. And so that was really like, again, such an eclectic mix of both my self-identity and then my identity within I could create something through technology. And along the way, from that storytelling aspect, in college, I had a blog that hyper-focused on organic beauty um, in its relation to um, environmental justice and the products and things we were using, how that was affecting communities of color. And the blog became very popular, and I really found my my, my niche in terms of writing. So I started pitching the Black Enterprises and the Next Cities and Habitat um, and Triple Pundit. And so I started to kind of create this freelance writing career that allowed me to really expand and as I started to dive into more of the trends that were shaping innovation, I was always looking for Black founders and innovators that I could cover in these stories. And so I never really set out to be a journalist, but I fell in love with the work and the craft of journalism. And eventually, um, as I, I started to grow in my writing and launch Um, my daily tech newsletter, which was the plug. It was not intended to be a business per se, Um, but I was working in tech. I was working for companies like Uber as well as Google Fiber, and I was attending conferences. And I just wanted people to get a glimpse into what I was seeing and falling in love with. And so that really embarked on my journey. And then eventually I decided to do the master's program, the data and journalism master's master's program at Columbia, because it combined both of the things that I loved, which was technology, logic, um, you know, data, along with the storytelling component. And so that really is like the all-encompassing component of like me starting in Seattle, being mentored by who I was mentored by, having a strong identity towards uh, uh, telling the story of Black innovation. Um, So yeah, so sorry, that was very long-winded,
0: but (laughs)
1: that's, that's me.
0: That's you, and that's you in all your fullness, and I really appreciate that. Um, when you do speak about the plug, you do mention the need for deep reporting and yeah. research on black innovation. Um, can you tell me more of when you noticed that the journalism space needed this to be filled?
1: I, I was always searching and looking for more black innovators to follow, to follow their work, um, and not just like founders, but just even um experts in this space. And what I what I saw was just very lackluster, I think, both from traditional outlets that covered business news. Um, I always saw, you know, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, like those folks we kind of knew about ad nauseum. And we had so many varieties of sites that catered to, to business news within the tech space. And it was just always white guys and their opinions and their predictions. And I just thought it was really bereft from the diversity of voices and folks who were actually building the technology on a day-to-day basis while these people were on stages giving speeches. And I also looked at Black publications, and I, I realized that there was such a hyper-focus on entertainment and sports and political opinion, and there wasn't a tremendous look at the technology that was actually shaping the world around us. And I noticed when I was in spaces or at conferences where there were, um, they were hyper-focused on Black issues, there was rarely anything talking about the technology trends that were directly affecting us. And also, people needed to know about in order to use it effectively. It always felt like we were kind of being reactive to what these things were. And I felt like a lot of the, the publications were just hyper-focused on consumer technology and talking about what things to buy. And how to use them versus um for the people leading in this work what are the companies that are that are building something really um insanely incredible um, who are the drivers who are the like chief you know technology officers of some of these companies that may happen to be of color or who was helping to sit on the boards of companies like facebook now meta um that were helping to drive decision making about what was going to be coming down the pipeline in terms of technology and so i saw this really interesting gap and Um, some of the bias as well of like not really hyper covering these communities. And when you saw outside of Seattle or New York or Silicon Valley, you saw these communities like Atlanta, even Charlotte, even Miami, all of these environments that were starting to um, emerge that were hyper supporting more inclusive innovation. And I just thought, well, why is no one like detailing this? Why Why is no one talking about the kind of wealthy black class of folks who made their money in government contracting in the 70s and the 80s, even in the 90s, who were now becoming investors into tech startups run by other black and brown folks. Um, And I remember pinning that piece for Vast Company and talking about that trend because not only were they investing in these companies, but the reason behind it was so incredible. It was, they were like, hey, I couldn't get a bank loan back in the day, I couldn't get anyone to invest in me or support me. I had to work twice as hard. And so there was just such richness that I thought was missing from the narrative of who was building and who was innovating. And I wanted that I I, I just created what I wanted to read for the most part. and that kind of slowly built up my reputation
0: with such a strong viewpoint and like a grasp on the subject matter that you had. Did you find that? it was easier to just create? Or did you find yourself having to really convince other publications, other outlets that would help to elevate the platform um, to buy in or to understand why this type of coverage was important? Mm -hmm. Or was it just more like, I'm gonna do it myself and you guys can worry about like uh, asking questions later?
1: It was a little bit of both, quite honestly, Joyce. It was um, first, you know, pitching these stories and, you know, getting like the one-off articles in pretty major publications or even some Black publications. But I constantly had to convince like why this topic was important. And I just always found that it was really challenging to pitch to editors who had not had a tremendous like understanding of technology or how technology was moving. And so I I found that it was really, really hard to say, hey, like, I'm going to be at the South by Southwest conference, and there's no Black media publications. And I want to give you these stories first. And, you know, kind of having to do a lot of back and forth with editors in terms of the nature of the stories because they wanted to politicalize to politicize them instead of really talking about like what's emerging from this and why we should be paying attention and so I tried as much as I could as the reporter on the ground to shape the story around opportunity and access and not kind of this like outrage media that we were constantly being left with it was just a lot of heaviness yeah yeah sure of course there's a ton of discrimination in tech but I don't want the focus on this Black founder and what they're building to be solely hyper-focused on their deficits or the deficits that they face in a a systemically biased environment. I want to talk about the genius of what it is that they're creating because that is more significant and we diminish them when we're only hyper-focused on using them as a political ploy and a clickbait headline. I also wanted to have my own column at a major publication to talk about these Black and Brown founders. And it just wasn't, the appetite of some of these publications. And so that's really what led me to create my own newsletter and say, well, listen, I'm not going to wait for someone to give me an opportunity. I'm going to go ahead and create my own and and do things the way that I want to do them. So I just, I just, you know, decided, Hey, I'm going to commit to the discipline of covering a story or at least like highlighting on a daily basis, like what's happening in the Black tech space. And, you know, Joyce, it wasn't pretty in the beginning, you know, it wasn't highly decorated. It was like, you know, getting subscribers. It became more for me, a discipline and curiosity and in and, and discovery. When 2020 happened and George Floyd was murdered, now all of a sudden the business, you know, the business publications wanted to start covering Black founders. And now we do have a, a lot more coverage in a very different kind of way, but prior to that, no one was really checking for you know black founders and and what was happening. You know, you had Angela Benton, um, probably circle like 2010, 2012, who had Black Web 2.0, who was starting to place that coverage. Um, but again, you know, it was it was very very limited, and and because it it definitely was an uphill battle that has that has definitely expanded a lot more now that the Black Tech scene has gotten much more attention that was not happening before 2020 so in in some ways it's kind of bittersweet but i do recall even as we were initially looking for funding i remember one of the feedback components we did receive was well what if you know the new york times or wired wants to like start covering this beat like how you stay competitive and it's like well they're not you know that was like circle 2018. they're not really seeing that level of value um and then of course now they they have started to make that transition and starting to hire more more black um you know editors and more black reporters to help cover this a little bit more so um so now that the industry is shifting a little bit my only hope is that it continues
0: how does a newsletter grow into a platform that becomes point of reference for the information for bloomberg and like such publications
1: growing the newsletter i was working still working full time so I hadn't yet done or created the platform itself. It was more of just like sign up for the newsletter and you'll get, you know, my thoughts and links to other articles I'm finding that's pretty interesting. That decision to start doing original content started to come when I when I realized like, oh, I could I could really actually turn this into much more than just a newsletter and I was starting to get some support um from corporate sponsors. And that enabled me to start bringing on some freelancers to to cover some stories. And so decided to stand up the, the website and just start to like publish like once a week, something very small, very minimal. Um, but the stories were so well done that we'd get tremendous traction. And I think once you get enough of that feedback, you realize like, oh, so there is, you know, people do want more deeper reporting. They do want, you know, they do want to see the numbers, the statistics, and not just like copy and paste press releases. And just slowly but surely, as I started to invest in that, um, it made sense to really, um, to really start pushing out uh, a full fledged media company versus just we have this newsletter. And like, that's kind of where we stay.
0: I like that you brought up copy and paste press releases, because I have noticed that a lot of, especially Black media, they turn to that because it is easy. It's like a form of syndication. It's a way to remain profitable to keep advertisers on your site. Um, but I understand that it's not necessarily easy to be able to generate original content at the scale that you had. Can you talk a bit about the strategy in developing the site um, into something greater?
1: Yeah, I think that was a big struggle because we did, you know, we did emerge during the era of. A lot of clickbait articles, a lot of like BuzzFeed style kind of articles and a lot of copy and paste. And I didn't want to do things cheaply. Not that I wanted to build a business that spent a ton of money, um, which media is hard because you do spend a lot of money to produce. If you want high quality content, you're going to have to pay for it. And I also just felt exhausted by that kind of way in which we had positioned media. And I felt there was a future for depth you know, I saw how, you know, there were more um, sites starting to emerge for like long form journalism. And so I decided to really jump in and and, and sort of catalyze on that. And, you know, that was our market differentiator, especially as a black run uh, media publication was that, hey, I can't compete against some of these publications that have been around for a while that have a lot of funding. um, So I can't do five or six articles a day. But maybe we do a media article once every two days. Because then we allow for some discussion and some digestion, and we can really, really dive into it. And when I look at, you know, the advertisers or the sponsors we are able to work with, we're able to produce more long form because of those relationships. Journalism is media, but not all media is journalism. And we're journalists. We don't just have a site. You know, we care about reporting. We care about fact checking. We worked with some talented reporters and writers, and it was like to reduce them to like a couple paragraphs of a summary versus really like engaging their true talent to build out great stories, um, I thought that was a disservice to the craft. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I stood on my high horse and and we could have had a lot more traffic for sure, but um, I always felt that when we got responses, you know, from our, from our readers and our loyal readers who stayed with us since the beginning, they were always like, we really, really appreciate what you do in this space.
0: I know another large differentiator of the plug was its strong focus on data. Can you talk more about why this was important to integrate into the new strategy?
1: You know, I I came, as I mentioned, I, I had a background in tech and startups, and data was everything. You know, data just drove every single decision. We'd have our weekly stand up meetings, and it was all about diving into the numbers. And that helped to open my eyes around the way that you drive business and you know, beyond beyond like the clicks, um, you know, beyond just looking at like page views, it, you know, truly, it truly was about like, what kind of things can we quantify in our storytelling that no one is actually looking at or paying attention to? What things can we build ourselves? What kind of information access do we have? And as I decided to go into my journalism program, um, that really helped to kind of, you know, create craft that not just using analytics for analytics sake but then also telling that story combining that kind of technical prowess into a story just create something different i also had read uh bloomberg by bloomberg and saw how you know him using von market data um really drove the the development of the terminal and then subsequently the you know bloomberg news and i thought that was really fascinating and i looked at what is the opportunity here to examine and to quantify black data um and so we had a partnership with vice and i did an analysis it was actually for one of my classes at cu on uh, measuring black-owned co-working spaces like no one had been asking about black-owned co-working spaces and we were in the wake of like the we work explosion and that story went viral in so many different ways and it it was just a solidification and a in a validation that there's some opportunity here to bring things into the marketplace as well um, around data sets that no one had been had been really asking for in a public way.
0: And what would you say is your advice to startup founders looking to pin down their differentiator?
1: Yeah, I, I think that you know you've gotta know what it is that you do well. And you've got to look at what are the gaps in the market in the space that you feel. And, you know, it's not something to necessarily overthink, but it is something to really take a look at. Are you really great at like doing case studies and breaking down deal flow? Um, Are you, you know, are you are you able to use data in an interesting way that really adds value to your audience beyond just like a strong story? Um, is there something else that you can get or a different way that you can ask a question uh, to to make your content, whether that's you know, printed content or um or video or even podcast um, that that provides some kind of educational value because that's what's going to onboard people into your mission. And how do you articulate that mission over and over and over again so that you stand out at whatever level that you're you're growing your company?
0: One surprising fact that I saw um was that, the plug didn't raise capital until year six. How exactly did you guys manage to sustain yourselves over the years, um, and what was the approach to funding that other people can learn from?
1: Yes, I mean it was on a hope and a prayer, and I mean, <laughs> you know, it was it was staying lean and small. I actually had not really thought about hiring because I thought, okay, we can kind of go freelance for a while. I had a part-time managing editor. Um, I liked the idea of staying small and staying very niche. And I had read Company of One by Paul Jarvis, and he had such an incredible system of staying lean and mean and using money very wisely to create high-quality products and tools without, you know, having to have like 10 to 15 plus employees. And so I, I also realized too, that like, I'm experimenting with this. I'd never built a media company. I had never done journalism at this level. And so I kind of treated it as an experiment and thought to myself, well, before I start raising capital, like I want to make sure I figure out this business model. I want to make sure that we have the audience. I want to make sure that like I I feel strong as a leader because just because you have a great idea and, you know, you launch something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the skills necessary to actually lead the company. And so you kind of realize and and learn how to lead and to manage um, just by starting with your freelancers, you know, just by, you know, working with contractors, um, learning how to bring on the right vendors to help design some of your tech solutions by the sixth year When I really realized like, okay, I do, I want to grow this thing. This thing can be really huge. Our data side, uh, we had launched subscriptions just the year prior. I wanted to see that grow. And it really came down to, I need to add talent because I am not sleeping and I would like to sleep at some point. You know, as a founder, as a CEO, your responsibility is keeping money in the door. And the great thing is that I was able to do about a million dollars in grants, which was non-dilutive capital as well as corporate partnerships. So I started with all of that very early because my days at Uber, you know, as a, as a marketing manager there, a lot of our, a lot of our work was also getting deal flow. It was, it was doing deals. So I knew how to do that. I I hadn't known how to raise money from like a venture capital standpoint. And I wasn't sure that I wanted venture capital dollars at that time, because, you know, when I was in grad school, when you know, Gotham shut down and like all of these like companies lost their valuations like Mike, you know, Mashable. And so I was like, well, venture capital is not going to be the route for us. So I have to get creative in terms of how we bring money into the door. So I did that for a while and just, you know, got foundation dollars, applied for all the grants. Um, Facebook had a journalism uh, platform, uh, Google News Initiative, like all of these things were opportunities to kind of you know slowly bring in some capital be it $50,000 there $100,000 there $250,000 there and it allowed me the time i needed because if we were going to take on other money we would have to be a lot quicker and i was still like we're figuring this still out we're still building our audience um and then on top of that doing subscription based revenue was really helpful getting corporate deals and editorial partnerships super super helpful and at one point it was like okay i'm going to need to i'm going to need to hire at least two to three people and I can't use the cash in the bank. Like we need to get some buffer so that I can offer benefits. You know, I can onboard people. I can give people a good experience here at the plug. Um, And, and I happened to just be having a conversation with um, a colleague and his friend, his friend happened to be an angel investor. And I actually, I actually didn't even, I hadn't even started my fundraising process. I had just been thinking about it. And this investor was like, well, I want to invest in your company. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And I decided to raise some more capital just to bring on more talent to help grow the grow the business.
0: We've talked a lot about growth, but things have changed since then. Um, so you announced in March that you would be shutting down the plug, closing the doors. Mm-hmm. Can you explain, when did you start to feel like this was a move that needed to be made? And what was it like closing the publication? I know personally that it did cause a ripple. I saw it featured in Black Enterprise. I saw it on Afrotech. I even heard it on Techish, the podcast. So the loss is felt in the community. Can you speak more to that?
1: Yeah, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of those publications that we long admired and and did collaborations with in some capacity um, that they, they, you know, spoke about it. Um, You know, I I really looked at the landscape and the growth opportunity for the plug um, in, you know, in 2023. Um, sort of following sort of all of the outpouring of resources in 2020 and 2021, where we saw tremendous growth. Um, one of the one of the challenges that I started to see and predict was the challenge of ongoing of being able to raise capital um, in, in such a really stark climate. And we were at a point where we were going to need to start raising some capital. And, um, even though like we had decent subscriptions, um, you know, expanding that was going to become more and more expensive. The spending and advertising for media generally was being pulled back. So people that we were going to be closing out deals with at the end of, um, the fourth quarter in 2022, their either departments were eliminated or their budgets were eliminated. And there was also this kind of internal fight of like where ad dollars barely reached black media publications and those challenges as well. And so I looked, I looked across everything. I think at the top of 2022, you know, it was really thinking about what new things can we, can we create to really expand the business? How far outside of directness of our reporting do we want to go do we want to try to add events now that you know we're kind of in a in a different space you know post-covid um but ultimately i looked at a couple of things i looked at what is our cash flow realistically going to look like are we going to be able to hit our our annual you know revenue goals how much more am i going to have to expand the team how much more expensive is that going to become And how much more hard are we gonna work now that the economy has significantly changed? Even though we were part of incredible consortiums that were working to get more black owned media publications advertising, it wasn't enough to truly cover overhead expenses. And then I had to look at how much more do I actually wanna work my team when the resources are being strapped and I cannot hire, it's not responsible for me to continue to keep hiring. That was kind of like the business aspect of it. It was like you know we could we could kind of be stagnant through the rest of the year and then hope that 2024 presents more opportunities, Um, or we can kind of pull back and you know find a buyer, which we actually did, um, so that the work can continue. But I thought to myself, I'm going to do my team a disservice if I can't help them grow. Um, I'm not not going to be able to provide additional promotions, things like that. But then also for myself, you know, this was seven years in, and I also felt like there are other stories I want to tell, um, you know, and that's the thing about like being a CEO, being a founder, you start with this passion for the craft, and then now you have to be kind of mired in, in, in fundraising and logistics and leadership and reviews and setting up, you know, 401k plans and all of those kinds of things. And I I kind of woke up at the top of the year and and recognized that, sure, we could continue to go, but if we're not going to experience tremendous growth, and if we actually did what we set out to do, then perhaps it's time to bow out while we're on top and start working towards some other incredible opportunities that have come as a result of doing this work. And so that's kind of what I'm working on in the background now um, to to bring forth. And um, it was not an easy decision, Joyce, at all. But it was really looking at like what's best for the team, what's best for um, for myself as a leader in terms of where I would like to go next and what value I can add. Um, and it was it was interesting to kind of you know have that announcement. You know, I told my team early on because I wanted to give them some time to regroup and to set themselves up for success and, and, you know, aid them in that transition. Cause that was not easy as you can imagine. Um, and then to, you know, to, to have to tell readers was really rough, but the outpouring of love and support was great. And, and, you know, last but not least, Joyce, I needed to rest. I needed a break. I really needed a break. I had been going so hard that I had neglected my own personal care and I needed to just rest. And that was the part where I realized I had not taken good care of myself in the name of trying to, you know, ensure the success of this company. And, um, and, and my health was starting to take a hit. I mean, we were, we were in, you know, our, our, our quarterly retreats and I'm breaking out in hives and because the stress of it all, you know, and having like, just these really, really uh, challenging um, medical issues pop up all because of stress, you know? And so that was kind of the side that I didn't um, talk about out loud until recently.
0: A reoccurring theme here is the value of relationships and community. What are your thoughts on how important it is for people starting their new ventures to facilitate these relationships and to keep community around them.
1: You need community because the startup journey is a very lonely one. It can be a very lonely one. So anytime that you can have community and support, it's going to help you in your kind of mental health, um, Saying social, asking for help is going to be imperative. Um, sometimes it's just, it, you never know. Some people have already kind of gone through that in experience that you're just starting to experience. And they can help you navigate. Um, so it's like never, never underestimate the power of, you know, working with people or having people within your orbit who have gone through, you know, gone through this experience and have the war stories that they can kind of help you, um, help you navigate. Um, and relationships matter a great deal. Let's just face it in terms of getting access to opportunities. You know, my relationships enabled me to get a deal with Vice. It, it enabled me to be, you know, in in front of Bloomberg so that we could, you know, we could be seen, um, which eventually led to us becoming the first Black business publication to syndicate on the Bloomberg terminal. Um, when I think about even just proximity to funders um, and foundations, you know, our name was on the lips of people I may have had, you know, one to two degrees of separation in terms of relationships so that our name was was spoken in rooms. Um, And so I think that, you know, we can't underestimate the value of our networks as well. Um, You know, leveraging, you know, being a Columbia J school graduate, um, that went a very, very long way, you know, let's face it, especially as, you know, a a black woman in this space, um, you know, where I'm gonna be given a lot less, and I've seen that in practice, um, you know, having, having that J school affiliation opened up doors that would not have been available to me all because maybe we attended the same Alma mater. I did a fellowship with the Northwestern Medill school of journalism that opened a lot of doors when you're in these rooms with big media players and in partners of people who went to those schools, um, you know, that really, really matters. And I, I won't pretend that it, that it doesn't. Um, And then I think, too, you know, relationships don't necessarily have to be one-on-one. The way that you create virtual relationships matter as well. Your presence on platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or what have you, sharing and, and, and connecting with people, those can also open doors, especially I, and I think about our readers. Like I had a relationship with our readers when I was like the only person working on the on the newsletter. You know, folks felt like they knew me. You know, they would reach out. They would respond. They would reply. They say, "Hey, I'm working on X, Y, and Z. Like I would love to introduce you or we're doing this. Can you come speak here? Those relationships are really important as well. So, um, you know, and I think that's just life, right? I think I think whatever you're working on, whatever you're doing, having a strong network, um, you know, community, is going to be significant both for your success and also your survival.
0: I wanted to speak about after 2020, when a lot of companies put together initiatives, pledges to back Black businesses in mass. a lot of places thrived because they saw a pouring in of new attention, funding, um, to be able to back their projects. And that plummeted significantly in 2022. Can you talk about being a Black startup founder? What is it going to be like pushing forward in this landscape where the hype essentially has died down?
1: You know, I think that we have lived in this country long enough to know that our dealings and challenges with racism and race-related matters is always, it is an endless ebb and flow. And I think that we cannot operate or build our companies or even our careers with the assumption that there's going to be an abundance of resources and opportunities at any given time. And I say that with, you know, full transparency of the level of opportunities and the doors that opened for us in 2020 and 2021, you know, as a result of all of the things that were all of the people, the the Black people that were killed um, you know, during that timeline, it was something that our team was truly able to catalyze on. I mean, the, my inbox, my DMS were full. And so we take, we took full advantage to get our wins because we also knew that it was going to be temporary. And when I spoke to my other colleagues, they knew that it was going to be temporary. And I think that if you, if you started to build those relationships well and maintain them, it, it still provided more doors Um, and continues to provide more doors and opportunities. And I think that the people who are continuing to see ongoing success and relationships and deals are folks who also delivered well during that time. I think that lots of companies were probably surprised at the level of caliber and quality um, of some of our work. And I think that's across the board, because again, folks weren't paying attention to you until they you know, started to kind of realize that racism was a thing in America, which is like really strange. Um, and, and then they realized like, oh, wow, like this is great. You know, you see these amazing black designers who are now in like the Saks and the Bergdorf Goodmans and what have you. They've been amazing. They've been creating high quality designs and, and products and customer service and all of that. But those doors that finally opened for them completely changed the game. And they'll be able to continue on with that. I would say just keep your foot on the gas, even in the face of, hey, this, the hype has died down, still treat yourself as a big deal, still walk into the rooms and ask for what it is that you want. And relationships continue to matter, whether there's a great opportunity or program just for Black founders or Black media publishers or not, know that, yes, this may be temporary, but it's how you leverage it. And how you continue to stay in touch with maybe you went through an accelerator. Stay in touch with those people. A lot of times, people will move on to different companies. And if you have that relationship, they may talk you up at that other company. And that may be an opportunity for advertising dollars, right? There may be a, a collaboration opportunity. So I would say, don't let it discourage you. I mean, recognize it for what it is. And I think we've all navigated that throughout our lives and throughout our careers but create authentic relationships. There are a lot of people who do mean well. And I think that if you give them, um, if you give them an opportunity to truly help you, um, you can continue to see positive results from that.
0: And you are on the road to reinvention yourself. Um, Can you tell us about what your life has been like since the spring? What can we look forward to from you?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I I was selected last year as the host of the TED Tech podcast, which has been amazing. It was my first journey into podcasting, and um, I have my own podcast called The Road to Reinvention. So I interview other entrepreneurs who have also made some pivots, um, and they have their own reinvention stories. Just really exploring what that process looks like, and sort of um, how we kind of take ourselves out of like the shame and the and the feelings of guilt of deciding, hey, I, I want to reinvent my story. Um, I'm also working on some amazing tools in the backgrounds, uh, things that I believe belong in the world, especially as it relates to black data and storytelling. Um, I really hit a lot of roadblocks when I was in grad school attempting to do an analysis of the black innovation economy. Unfortunately, black data is not um, valued, and a lot of the data that we kind of look at these days is hyper focused on deficit data and deficit narratives. And so um, so for, for me and some team members that came over with me from the plug, we're working on some projects um, in tandem with a couple of different um, organizations and investors um, to really create more of a single source of truth. So um, that'll emerge, um, you know, in and, you know, whenever it does, <laughs> I'm not going to make promises in terms of delivery date, but I'm really passionate about it. And you know, and, and this is also a big personal time uh, for me and my family as well. My grandfather is turns ninety this year, and it is amazing to be able to continue to document the stories of my family. And I think that, um, and I try to encourage a lot of black people to, you know, document the stories of your elders. And, you know, they were the first innovators. You know, my grandfather hopped off a of bus from Detroit, Michigan in nineteen fifty three landed in Seattle and started working for Boeing as an aircraft technician, didn't have a high school diploma. He had a cert- certification and he started making $2.38 an hour and that helped to usher him into the black middle class. And I think those stories need to be told. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that you know one day I'll be able to collect those stories of all of our elders um, and, and create maybe something significant that the world can see about what, um, what contributions black innovators have made to this country.
0: to thank Shirelle again for her time with us. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more media insights. A reminder that the opinions stated in this episode do not reflect the views of the New York Association of Black Journalists. For more information, please visit our website at www.nyabj.org. Music is by Holizna Raps.